A lot of times changes that I see that happen in a systemic level initially are symbolic. There's not an actual change until the people running the system change. Their own attitudes and understandings change because of their ability to feel safe and comfortable with it, right? So what does it mean to make someone feel safe and comfortable? Oftentimes we've got to get uncomfortable in order to get to this place of being safe and comfortable with change. And so, so much personal work has to happen in order for those persons to make systems change. Otherwise, it's just talk. Hello and welcome to FYI, the Public Library's podcast. I'm Kathleen Hughes, Manager of Publications for the Public Library Association. Today's episode will focus on equity, diversity, and inclusion, EDI for short, and features three guests who have been working tirelessly in this arena. In addition to the great information you are about to hear, be sure to check out the free PLA webinar, Understanding Power, Identity, and Oppression in the Public Library, which is a great introduction to these topics. You can find it at www.ala.org slash PLA slash education slash online learning slash webinars slash on demand slash understanding. Now to introduce our guests. Amitha Lonial will lead today's conversation. Amitha, she, her, hers, is currently the principal librarian for learning, marketing, and engagement at San Diego County Library. She also currently serves as the co-chair for the PLA Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force. Racial and social justice is something she has always been passionate about. Prior to becoming a librarian, she spent eight years in the nonprofit sector working with organizations engaged in direct action organizing and policy reform. Working in public libraries has deepened her commitment to doing liberation-based work in our communities and with library staff. Katie Dover-Taylor is a reference librarian at the William P. Faust Public Library in Westland, Michigan, where she focuses on library technology and digital literacy training. Katie has developed her understanding of power and oppression in public libraries through both community organizing and scholarship. In 2015 and 2016, Katie co-coordinated the Radical Librarianship Track at the Allied Media Conference, bringing the first official gathering of library-centric content to an annual conference which draws a diverse spectrum of creative and technology-savvy people engaged in social justice work. In 2017, Katie co-authored the chapter, Disrupting Whiteness, Three Perspectives on White Anti-Racist Librarianship for Topographies of Whiteness, Mapping Whiteness in Library and Information Science. She is currently a member of PLA's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force. Mia Henry, she, her, hers, is the Executive Director of the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership. Mia joined the team in 2014 with over 18 years of experience in nonprofit management, training facilitation, intergenerational community organizing, and civic and history education. Mia was the founding director of the Chicago Freedom School, CFS, a nonprofit organization that supports youth-led social change and youth-adult partnerships and community organizing. Since her work with CFS, Mia has been a consultant nationally with Safe Places for the Advancement of Community and Equity, S-P-A-C-E-S, and in Chicago with the Chicago History Museum, Chicago Public Schools, and the University of Chicago Hospital. Mia is also the owner and operator of Freedom Lift It, a small business dedicated to providing civil rights tours. Mia is deeply passionate about social movement history, positive youth development, and civic engagement through an anti-oppression lens. Welcome all. Thank you. As Kathleen mentioned, uh, Katie and I are members of the PLA Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force, which launched uh, about a year ago last June. We have members from across the country, and what we've been focusing on this past year is trying to provide educational opportunities to PLA members on these issues and hopefully supporting a larger culture shift within public libraries to embrace and advocate for social justice institutionally. 
Um, so we've been really honored to have Mia Henry uh, be with us for basically this entire journey. And she's been doing a lot of um, great training work, not just for our task force, but starting to provide that to directly to PLA members. So we're super excited to be here for this conversation. Thanks so much, Mita, for getting us started. I'm just coming off a full weekend at the Allied Media Conference in Detroit. AMC is an awesome conference which centers queer and trans people of color and youth who are involved in all kinds of media making and social justice organizing. Mia, I think you organized the track uh, this year at AMC. How, how'd it go? Well, I didn't organize a track, but I, um, I facilitated a session within a track and, um, was part of maybe an advisory panel to the movement journalism track. It was an incredible space, and my friend Lewis Wallace tapped me in after Lewis came out to Arcus right after the 2016 election, or actually the inauguration, and did a, an event on what we called Crisis in the Press. And um, since then, we've been just talking a lot and, and thinking a lot about what the role of, of journalism is in this moment where the press is being questioned and undermined and facts are not facts and <laughs> and how that really threatens uh, democracy. So I was really honored to be able to co-facilitate a session with Lewis at the AMC on what strategies for understanding oppression and strategies for resistance in journalism look like. And Lewis provided all kinds of historical examples of journalists who were in resistance and, and in solidarity, doing solidarity work. And I kind of laid out, similar to what I've been doing with, with librarians, this historical framework of what oppression looks like and then our strategies for resistance as we pull from the black freedom movement and the, in this country. So it was great to do that, but I had a fever of 101. Oh my God. <laughs> so oh, while no. I was doing it, so I actually left almost immediately after we did the session and drove back to Kalamazoo. Wow. <laughs> and I went, I had another presentation on Saturday morning. So I wow, are you feeling all right now? Medicated. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just getting oh. over it. Um, yeah, just just started to feel really back to myself today. So yeah, it was it was great what I could what I could feel of it and what <laughs> how present I could be. Oh. I was there the week, the day before as well at a network gathering for facilitators across the country. So I got a, a couple of a day and a half of, of the good energy at the Ally Media Conference. But I think it's a it's a place I believe there was a librarian's track last mm -hmm. year. Yeah. Yeah, the, Katie actually helped to start that track. It's it's a radical archive Libraries, archives, and museums track now, which is interesting. Sort of thinking mm -hmm. across, you know, those those boundaries of cultural institutions. I went to a really amazing session done by some historians of slavery in the diaspora. It was called Maroon Oracle Network Decolonizing Digital Spaces. I, I like, can't even really describe like how transformative it was. It was really good. It was really interesting to think about kind of how our um, modern experiences of social justice and organizing towards liberation and freedom are contiguous with things that have happened throughout history. Wow. And who was who was facilitating that? Jessica Marie Johnson. She is a professor. Um, she's based in Baltimore. I'm not sure where she's at. Um, but she's been a very involved in I Like Media Conference over the years, I believe. And there were a few other really awesome folks in and at the borders of academia who were kind of facilitating that conversation. Yeah, it's a fantastic conference, I think, for, for folks who are in these fields. 
you know, in mm-hmm. particular since they've started going the route of having tracks and proposing them mm-hmm. because they've become this great way for people across the country to, to converge and really focus on what it means to bring liberation through this work. I don't know. It's it's sort of mind-blowing to connect with all sorts of people who are doing work in many different fields, making media, mm-hmm. dancing, making films, you know, um, and organizing and and mm-hmm. figuring out what that looks like and, and how it might look in our context, in the public library context. So Mia, um, maybe this is a good bridge for that. One of the reasons we had originally, our group had reached out to you in this effort to partner with PLA is because you have been advancing social justice and liberation work in a variety of different um, cultural spaces. And I was hoping you might be open to sharing with us what it's what it means to do this work in public libraries or museums and what are things that you're seeing in these kind of cultural spaces that, that are exciting you or what are, what are the possibilities you think are there? You know, I used to be a public school teacher and because public education is under such attack, I feel like public mm-hmm. libraries are one of our few places um, that is, that's left that are truly open to everyone. And so it's been really amazing for me to be able to be in in rooms with with people who are committed to cultivating those spaces and they are holding them down and nurturing them and and building them in really responsible ways that make sure that they're not just theoretically open to everybody, but everybody, mm-hmm. they're places where everyone belongs and everyone owns the space too. So mm-hmm. it's been, I've, I've loved it. And I've always wanted to, particularly when I was living in Chicago, was to have this museum of social change mm-hmm. and to have this, this space that. that really, yeah, uplifted the, the work of local resistance movements and um, as well as ones that caught fire, right, and went um, mm-hmm. nationally and globally, having a space that is dedicated to that that history, the history of, of resistance. So to be able to work in museums and say, okay, well, does this have to be its own does my dream is my dream coming coming true? You know, in this way that it's a, it's its own museum, its own space, or can we actually make sure that there's resistance history and and an understanding, appreciation of of liberation work in in all museums? You know, that can move that forward. I love working with uh, folks and, and librarians, and I feel like people who go into the field are going into it for this this reason that much like teachers will go into a classroom, right? This really honest and and the intention there is to serve the people. So that to me is one of those things that like, of course, you know, this is where we can have the the best conversations. We can reclaim (laughs) our intentions and be in community with one another in a way when we're training together, because I know that the work can be, can feel somewhat isolating to folks. Like as much as you go in and, and, and do your work in the libraries, everyone has their own type of work they do in the library and, and, um, their own specialties and that kind of thing. So the opportunity, what I've noticed and what I've realized is that there are rare opportunities that everyone working in a particular library or the librarians from other across, you know, regions are able to get together and be encouraged by one another and to really exchange ideas about things that are bigger than just task oriented or how, <laughs> you know, how, how we do, how we build specific skills, but to be able to get together and say, why are we doing this in the first place? 
And coming back to that, I think as those opportunities were not as plentiful as I thought they were, they would have been before going into this work. And so mm-hmm. part of it has just been nice to be able to <laughs> to watch and listen librarians talking to each other and be rekindled in the the passion that brought them to the work in the first place. Um, through this new learning and through this, their own, you know, my, my trainings and the work that I've been doing always begins with the self, right? Revolution begins mm-hmm. in and of the self, Tony Cape and Barra. So it's really, you, we start with that personal reflection. There has to also be some kind of commitment to vulnerability around sharing that personal reflection and then mm-hmm. thinking about history and how this applies to our work today. And so to just be able to witness and, and cultivate, again, spaces that that folks in the field are able to think about who they are and who they are in their in their work. How did they get to this place that they're in right now and how do they understand themselves and their positionality in the work before getting into solutions, which is what everyone mm-hmm. wants to go directly mm-hmm. to when we do this work. Just mm-hmm. to be be part of those conversations where people get to be fully human before we get into the what to what to do about the the problems it's been just a real pleasure and honor particularly in this space and i see after mm-hmm. just limited interaction with journalists at at the AMC i found i was like wow the journalist <laughs> would also be a great folks and and i see why um my um interest and excitement about being around journalists is similar to what i've been able to feel from being with librarians is this Obviously, the ideas around control and access to information and which stories get 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 told and which mm-hmm. ones don't right mm-hmm. um and how do we use this this work this this that should belong to everyone how how do we position ourselves as the conduit to fulfill promises of democracy right and so that we're not just mm-hmm. Talking about being a, f- a free nation, but really actively mm-hmm. achieving it, you know. And I really feel like journalists and librarians are kind of pillars yeah. of them. I actually think that there's a lot of parallels between kind of what's happening in journalism to what's also happening kind of in libraries. So when Lewis, the person you co-facilitated with, wrote an article last year around this idea of objectivity is dead, to me it really mirrored a conversation that's actually happening in libraries around how we have sort of anchored ourselves to this idea that we're neutral spaces. Um, And there's sort of been this like revival of this conversation around how that's just like not really authentically possible. So uh, it was really interesting reading that article and and then actually sharing it with sort of like my librarian people and kind of seeing um, some of those some of those similarities. And there's actually, I think, been a little bit of a push, um, I think, particularly through the Knight Foundation to sort of um, try to connect journal, like try to embed librarians more so in journalism and try to embed like journalists more so in like sort of like librarian work. So which I think is really exciting. Wow. Um, yeah, that's yeah it's really cool. One of the things I think that you said early on, Mia, that, that kind of struck me as sort of when you were kind of talking about how libraries are sort of like one of our last open, free public spaces. There's so much opportunity in that. But I think for, for me, I also see that as some of like the challenge because I think public libraries like are kind of like idealized in the cultural imagination, you know, in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. we provide such a such an amazing thing, right? All of these, not just books that are for free, but classes that are for free, um, services that are for free, et cetera. But what our, our profession is also has a lot of really difficult 
infrastructure, right? So we're a very, we're a very white um, profession. The latest set of statistics, like over 80% of folks who work in libraries are white. So there's a lot of like sort of entrenched white supremacy that we see comes out in our service points, like the way that our collections have been managed or the way that we spend our money on programs, et cetera. I think that's something I'm always trying to navigate. Like there's this public perception of libraries that's like really wonderful and really true. Um, and that we also need for like funding and all of that kind of good stuff. But then I think when you're kind of like on the inside track, like you see, we are just as much a part of sort of like the systems that uphold structural oppression as we are sort of like really actively like trying to undermine that and, and fight that. It is really hard to balance this idea of like, we have to be critical about the services that we provide and how we provide them and how they exclude folks on all of these different dimensions. We hold this space in the popular imagination as a particular thing, you know, as a particular democratic institution, right? And, and, and the sort of trust that people have for us because we hold that space in the popular imagination is something that we don't want to just throw away that trust, you know, and we don't want to say, no, we're not trustworthy. Um, but we want to really earn that trust. One of the ways that I've been thinking about this recently is through a term by uh, Fobazi Itar, which is uh, vocational awe. Mm-hmm. So this idea that mm-hmm. like, because we have this sense that librarians are called to this work, we can then not pay them very well to do it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and because we have this idea that librarianship is a calling, we don't turn our, our gaze as critically to what we're doing, right? Because we think we have this built-in democratic value around freedom mm-hmm. of information, freedom of access to things. It's harder for us to turn into this mode of transformation, right? And looking mm-hmm. really seriously at, at the things that we need to improve and grow on. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That's something that I think about a lot in terms of how do we support the people who are doing this work, how do we make sure that we're that we're really valuing what people bring to um, libraries, and how do we make sure that we're not just saying, "Hey, like everything's good here," you know? And and if you have a problem with how how things are working in this space, then obviously the problem's with you. It's not with us. Given that, how do you see the differences between how different librarians uh, receive? training in equity, diversity, and inclusion, or even not even, you know, focused training, but just even approach conversations about it? I think in my experience, like that, that sort of vocational awe that we all feel, like it becomes like a, like a sort of like line of defense that you have to sort of like tenderly kind of navigate with folks, because I think that um, because people are so earnest about being mm-hmm. here and being here for helping people and being here like sort of for the for the right reason that that we're on the right side you know uh, we're not on sort of like the wrong side I think that it's it's really tricky it is I don't and know and there's a sort Katie, of gentle yeah. calling in that we that mm-hmm. I think we have to do <laughs> to this mm-hmm. work right and I think that that gentle calling in again goes back to that vulnerability that you were talking about Mia that that mm-hmm. feeling of like this is personal work and structural work and cultural work, you know, and we can sort of come at it in different ways, like whichever ways um, kind of work best for ourselves. We have to be willing to, to be vulnerable and to think about, you know, the ways that we've potentially harmed people without meaning to, but like also not get caught up in like, this was my intention, you know, like, but not mm-hmm. getting caught up in our own egos and intentions around, well, I didn't mean to hurt you, that it stops the conversation. And so I think it's especially important for us to work to practice 
letting go of those intentions around mm-hmm. um, or that sense of like my intention not to harm is more important than your story of the harm you experienced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not, that's not easy. Not at all. In these conversations, when we do trust each other, when we do value that we all sort of want the same outcome, you know, that we all are here for collective liberation. I think that's when we get these moments of connections and these start to build the relationships that we're going to need with each other in order to transform. This is so interesting to me. I hadn't heard this term before, vocational awe, and I definitely want to read the the article because I, again, as a former teacher, I think teachers for a period of time uh, for, for sure have that that was this, it was very similar, right? You go into teaching, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it's the most altruistic, um, you know, um, profession. You get, you know, don't get paid very well, and and then teachers feel very, um, in particular, history teachers uh, <laughs> feel very <laughs> um, self righteous in there. You know, look, this is what I'm, the, the the work I'm doing is invaluable to society, and you can't mm-hmm. really tell me that <laughs> I need to change in any way because I've made the ultimate sacrifice, right, <laughs> to be a teacher. Teacher and I'm offering them, you know, this this invaluable service and journalists, that, you know, very similar. So this idea of instead of being proud of after just going into the work and kind of sitting on our laurels, right, and being uncritical of 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 the field and how and our role in it, how do we associate pride with the ability and willingness to evolve and to mm-hmm. learn, adapt, and face our imperfections, which are definitely a part of, of the work that mm-hmm. we're doing. Because there's some hard truths that have to be faced to do, mm-hmm. to be committed to equity, and they have to be Absolutely. faced over and over again. And as we've explored in all different parts of the work. It's having these conversations kind of at the border of our profession rather than only within in-group conversations about what it means to be librarians. And Mm -hmm. having them at the border with people who are just members of our community who might be interested in libraries, people who are community organizers, Mm. people who are making all sorts of technologies and, you know, like really thinking about what is the future of a just society. Mm -hmm. And when we have these critical conversations about librarianship within those border spaces, it's very helpful because it gets us out of this sort of like negative, negative feedback loop where we're like, and we have to be Mm -hmm. critical of this and we have to be critical of that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. these are all the ways that this is broken. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when you have those conversations kind of at the edges, you find out that there are those folks that just love libraries that have come to be in that conversation with you. And I think that that love and that joy around the work that we do is Mm -hmm. something that I have pride in that. And I think it's okay to have pride in that. That is so helpful is that making Mm -hmm. sure that we're not stuck in this like echo chamber of library discussions and library scholarship that we are mm-hmm. like kind of poking holes and, and like mm-hmm. finding ways to let the light in, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something I actually struggle with because I'm sort of more like upper level management in a large government bureaucracy. Like you said, those sort of like adjacent spaces or border spaces where we're poking those holes have, have really been so life-filling and, and I think necessary and, and kind of grounding as 
PLA and even other divisions within ALA are really trying to figure out how to make equity, diversity, and inclusion like something that is actionable and meaningful and not just sort of lip service or, or saying the right thing. I do think that I've been sort of struggling with how do we manage the scale at which we like want to sort of do this work and feel so desperate and and urgent to kind of do this work. On the one hand, we understand that these challenges and the way that oppression operates, it operates on so many different levels, interpersonal levels, interpersonal levels, cultural levels, systemic levels, right? And and it's just, it can be kind of overwhelming. And, And I see this sort of earnest initiative to sort of really get at that sort of like systemic level changes and and try to make authentic investments in doing this work. So whether that's putting EDI in like your strategic plan or maybe you're hiring somebody to sort of help you do this work in your organization. And these are really, really powerful things. But sometimes I wonder if we're almost not doing it at the very local, personal and like small scale levels that this work kind of needs to be happening, that we can't treat it like other campaigns, our profession has approached, like literacy campaigns or, or things like that. So I don't know. I know it's not really a question, but how do we carry ourselves and spread liberatory practices like small scale and large scale? And how do we, how do we keep dreaming, you know, allow ourselves to keep dreaming big and manage the fact that we're in these very complex, large systems, a lot of us. How do we talk about these things first of amongst ourselves, like in our own lives? Um, because systems are made up of people, you know? <laughs> um, and if we're not able to make those changes, like within our own communities, in our own homes, right, um, in, in even smaller projects within a larger whole, there's almost a, it's the practice needed. It's the way we what I call prefigure the world that we mm-hmm. want to create. So I think it's actually more useful to start small. A lot of times changes that I see that happen in a systemic level initially are symbolic. There's not an actual change until the people running the system change. Their own attitudes and understandings change because of their ability to feel safe and comfortable with it, right? So what does it mean to make someone feel safe and comfortable? Oftentimes, we've got to get uncomfortable in order to get to this place of being safe and comfortable with change. And so, so much personal work has to happen in order for those persons to make systems change. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just talk. It's not any action. And that's what really frustrates people, I think, the most. I feel like where I see people the most at their wit's end are the places that have maybe on paper made commitment changes, but their their mm-hmm. the actions have not followed that. So there's this terrible tension in in um what they understand they're a part of and what they feel they're a part of, you know, what mm-hmm. they what they're told they're a part of and what is actually happening. So I think the pri- the practicing and being able to give people those spaces to feel the discomfort that is necessary, the even pain that is necessary and not and this is not just pain on part of people who've been um, targeted, who've been, who've, who've experienced oppression directly, but the, the you know, there's psychological pain and, and there's, there's um, a, a terrible effect on everyone. Oppression has mm-hmm. this, this really horrible effect on everyone, right? Sometimes we've buried that depending on, on how we identify and that has to be uncovered and that pain has to be faced in order for us to really be part of a transformation. So that is easier, I think, for, for everyone to happen on a, on a small scale and mm-hmm. in community with one another. If people feel isolated, they, it won't happen. And if they feel um, unsafe, it won't happen. 
I don't know if either of you have read that that book, The Power of Habit. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting about just how um, he's using, of course, um, m- many different researchers to talk about how people form habits, both good and bad, where that comes from. And so there's a, you know, there's a cue and there's a r- routine. They use many, many different examples, but one of the notable examples for me was the Montgomery bus boycott, right? And mm-hmm. uh, why Rosa Parks, right? Why people got in and um, were able to develop a habit of not getting on the buses. And it had to be a habit because it lasted over a year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who, who were they willing to do that for? So it was more of mm-hmm. who they were they willing to do that for versus a what they were willing to do it for because there have been mm-hmm. many people who had refused to give up up their their seat on the bus before that, but it's this idea of Rosa Parks had these really strong ties in many different communities in the city of Montgomery. So when something happened to her, um, it mattered to them. And then the, and then so that was part of you know why people were like, of course we're willing to do things when there's a personal connection mm-hmm. to the to to what's happening. So what how do we how do we move people to to action we need to create more personal relationships with one another so we feel more mm-hmm. um accountable mm-hmm. accountable exactly and responsible for mm-hmm. one another and then the weak mm-hmm. ties piece too you know it's the whole strong ties weak ties argument made here that after a while there were so many people in Montgomery who we're talking about how important Rosa Parks was to them and how this was just too wrong that it happened to her. So even if they didn't know Rosa Parks, you know, this is what we're supposed to be doing as a, as a people. So, of course, yes, there's been there, there's a moral reasoning behind the, the boycott, but that had been there had been moral reasoning and frustration for years. And um, many people who had refused to give up their seats and been arrested, but it took that personal tie um, and that connection to community for people to really change. And I think just going back to your question, Amita, is that personal relationships are not systemic. They're not on a systemic level. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> on, on a small scale, that's where that happens. So that's where we build our moral yeah, consciousness. Really actually, it's built in small community. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed yeah. being the, in these, the trainings with you all. You know, the trainings with 40 people, like 30, 40, 50 people mm-hmm. most is good. Mm-hmm. The rooms of 100, mm-hmm. 200, 300 people, not so good, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, because we, it's harder to practice being there for one another and building relationships with one another, which is, to me, the it's the baseline for any change. Right. And then systems mm-hmm. learn from that. Mm-hmm. They're either pressured from that or they borrow from what, mm-hmm. what is most, I'm sure you've seen it, right? Smaller projects mm-hmm. happening within the library, super successful. And so the larger mm-hmm. library takes credit for it and tries to replicate. Yep. That's the level that we need to really start working on and, and thinking about, right? Is like, how yeah. do we build these networks of relationships that will hold us up, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. And everybody's contribution is necessary for movement work. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody is needed. Right. So the book is Pies from Nowhere. I just learned about it. How yeah. Georgia Gilmore sustained the Montgomery bus boycott. The people who cooked and brought food for the mass meetings and sold sandwiches and, you know, created, brought the bread and the lettuce and the chickens <laughs> and everything. So, so people were able to um, to to eat. Um, when they were at the mass meetings and uh, as they were boycotting. It's amazing. So the children's books just came out. 
should we maybe try to wrap up with what are we reading, watching, or listening to that's inspiring us or nourishing us in some way? Mia, we do this question in here because librarians love to to just gossip about these kind of things. So yeah, um, right now looking into uh, social psychology books. So the book um, The Power of Habit, the um, Presence book by Amy Cuddy. I'm reading a, a young adult fiction book, Dear Martin, because mm. I'm always interested in what is. I teach a lot of young adult fiction and nonfiction, and I'm always interested in what how the issues of the day get addressed in this genre and mm-hmm. have suggestions, you know, for young people. So that's good. And it's been great. And because we I work at a college and everybody right now who's traditional college age is that they're actually not millennials anymore. They're Generation Z mm-hmm. or Generation Edge or iGen. And so um, it's been interesting because of the they grew up during an economic re- recession. And that has a high impact on how they understand their futures and what it means to work for a company or work for themselves and the ideas of what, you know, the value added of college and that kind of thing. So it's been, that's been really interesting. And then also I'm actually listening to Angela Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle. She's reading it and <laughs> and I love listening to her talk. And then, and then also what she's doing is reading uh, her own speeches um, from the past mm-hmm. like five years and um, letters, emails and things that have been written to her and that she's written back. So, um, I'm enjoying that as well. Katie, what are you reading? I have a lot of things that are backed up. Like I just started, um, So You Want to Talk About Race. Not like too deep into it, but I've been enjoying it so far. Yeah, I'm, I'm also like reading up a little bit on like union organizing history. I don't know what that looks like because I just started a role as union chair at my library. So I'm trying to get comfort on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're going to go into bargaining soon. So I'm I'm trying to, you know, prepare for for that sort of stuff. How about you, Amita? Are you something that's nourishing or inspiring you lately? You know, I do have a three-year-old, so that is always (laughs) nourishing and inspiring among other other feelings. But so I read a lot of um, kids' books, and we recently got this book called Julian is a Mermaid. I don't know if you all have heard of it or seen it, but it's this gorgeous, gorgeous picture book about this young little boy named Julian who identifies as being a mermaid and is riding the train with his abuela and sees these mermaids and then goes home and maybe just is still feeling inspired by the mermaids. And so abuela goes off to do something and he Julian just goes in and like finds the plants and finds the curtains and everything to be a mermaid. And then when abuela comes back, it's sort of this like moment of uncertainty of like how is Abuela like is Abuela mad that you know he did all of this but then she um, sort of takes him on a walk and they find the mermaid parade in Coney Island and just sort of like invites Julian to sort of um, to join the mermaids and it's just so beautiful and I guess this is based on a I think there might be an actual activity maybe in Coney Island called the mermaid parade but it's just the artwork is incredible and the story is just like the sweetest thing ever so I've been super into this picture book if you have seen it. And then as far as other things, I just finished um, a YA book called The Children of Blood and Bone, which is pretty incredible. And I think there it's already got movie rights and things like sort of in the making, but it was really, really good. That's all I got right now. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Thank you all so much for this eye-opening, thoughtful and important conversation. I really enjoyed listening and I learned so much. Thank you. And I also appreciated the book recommendations. I was thinking maybe we could make this a regular episode so that we can keep track of all the interesting things you are all doing. Mm